Let me pray. Our Father and our God, as we come to your word, help us to come with reverence and humility. Thank you that you have a word for us today. Give us ears to hear so that Christ would be honored and we might be transformed for Jesus' sake. And in his name we pray. Amen. This morning we move to, as Brian just read, chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 1 that we finished last week, Paul prays for the church in verses 15 to 23, and we repeatedly noted that this prayer is such a great model for all of us to be praying, for ourselves and for other people, especially believers. It helps us to know God better, and that is Paul's driving concern in that prayer, and frankly, throughout much of the part of the letter, that the church would come to know God more intimately. Specifically, he prayed that we would come to know God more intimately as we'd come to know first, what is the hope to which he has called us? Broadly, that means praying that we would always live with an overriding eternal perspective looking to heaven because that's not only where our hope is, that's where our home is. A big part of knowing God is having an ongoing sense of homesickness as we give our minds and our hearts to thinking about and rejoicing in the hope of eternal life that we have in Jesus. Broadly, that's what that means. Paul also prays that we would come to know God better by knowing what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is a prayer that the church would be enraptured with our most precious treasure, our chief treasure, Jesus Christ. We come to know God better as the Spirit of God continually and persistently reveals more and more of the riches that we have as we have this glorious inheritance of being in the eternal presence of Jesus Christ. Finally, last week we saw Paul praise that we would come to know God better as his Spirit reveals to us what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Paul is praying that we in the church would come to know the kind of immeasurable power God exerts to save sinners from condemnation and give us eternal life. Paul reveals here that the saving power that God exerts to save a sinner is the same kind of miraculous, supernatural, life-imparting power that he gave when he raised Jesus from the dead, when he ascended him to heaven, and when he seated him at the right hand of God, far above all heavenly demonic powers. Paul prays that we in the church would know that, that we would taste that, and that we would rejoice in that power so great that it can't be measured, and that is required to save sinners out of their spiritual death. Today, as we move to chapter 2, it's important that we remember that when Paul wrote it, there were obviously no chapter divisions. That came much, much later, which means that Paul is continuing on with the argument that he began in chapter 1. As we mentioned last week, it is amazing for God to manifest his resurrecting, ascending, and exalting power in his transfer of Jesus from the grave to heaven. But now, Paul speaks of this same power, and he applies it to us, his church. Now we can see that the reason Paul prayed that God would reveal to us this kind of power required to save a sinner in this threefold process of raising and ascending and exalting Christ is because when spiritually dead sinners are saved, God does all of that for them 
as well, because we are spiritually united with the risen and ascended and exalted Christ. Because in the new birth, believers are united with Christ, we share with him in what he experienced from his grave to his exaltation in heaven. And as we see in today's text, Paul was praying that the Spirit would help us to appreciate and praise God for what he has already done in us as dead sinners who have been with Christ seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. That's why Paul begins this section with, and you were dead, or and you also were dead. What he's doing is he's connecting what he's about to say with what he's talked about earlier in the death of Jesus. He's saying, in essence, Jesus died, and so you also were dead. Now, we obviously don't have the same kind of death that Jesus had. Jesus died physically because he took our sin upon himself on the cross, and he died as payment for the death penalty that we in our sin owe to a holy God. That's the gospel. In the case of our death, as sinners, we were spiritually dead in Adam's sin when we were born, and we're very much in need of a resurrection. We saw last week that to be spiritually dead means that you are completely unable to see or appreciate, much less worship God in response to the beauty and the glory and supremacy of Christ. That's what it is to be dead in your sin. Sam Storms describes being spiritually dead this way. He said, they are blind to the glory of Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of his personal reality, no longing for fellowship with his people. Those who are spiritually dead may still mentally know of God's glory in Christ, have mental ascension to that, but they haven't personally tasted of it. And that's consistent with what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. And he's talking about sinners, and he says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. What he's saying is Satan works to keep dead sinners from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In other words, he does whatever God allows him to do to keep sinners from life-giving, soul-resurrecting gospel truth that can bring them out of death into life. It's important to clarify that unbelievers can be very religious regularly attending gospel preaching churches, serving on ministry teams. You don't need to have spiritual life to be a very religious person. The Pharisees were exceedingly religious and they were dead. Some people who regularly attend church and are very religious have no spiritual life. We're all created in God's image and the presence of what remains of his image in us that alone can cause some folks to be talented, some people to want to go to church because that part of the image is still alive in them. But the image of God that is stamped on each one of us, as we know, is horribly shattered. And that means that apart from Christ, all our talents, all our ministries are hopelessly saturated with sin. They don't glorify God. It's very important for the church to become better acquainted with this truth of what it is to be spiritually dead. Now that sounds maudlin, 
But Paul brings that up a lot. The New Testament brings that up a lot. And so it's an important thing for us to know. It's especially important in our culture because many in the church, frankly, today haven't been carefully taught on this. They haven't been living with an ongoing awareness of this truth that really is crucial for spiritual health. And it's crucial to have a biblical understanding of what it is to be a Christian. As we look at Paul's destination, or I should say declaration, that we are spiritually dead, let's just think for a minute about some very practical implications of this truth that will show us why it's important for us to have a good handle on this. One implication we looked at last week, and that is that the salvation of a sinner is nothing less than a supernatural, miraculous raising from the dead of a sinner. It's crucial that we know that In order to save a sinner, God has to raise the dead. Now, there are several implications that fly off of that truth. One is that all sinners are equally needy of this spiritual life, regardless of their personality and how sinful they may appear to be. This is very important and very practical. What I mean here is because all sinners are spiritually dead, that means that it requires no greater work of God to save an imprisoned mass murderer than it does to save an eight-year-old who's been raised in a gospel-preaching church because they're both equally dead. You're either dead or you're not dead. There are no degrees of deadness in spite of what the princess bride may try to tell you. (laughs) Too often, we look at what we see to be really hard cases, people that have been locked in sin for a generation, and frankly, our first impulse is to say they're never going to get saved. They are too far gone. They're too hardened in their sin. At the same time, on the other end of things, parents of a child child is compliant, enjoys going to Sunday school to learn about Bible stories, loves to hear you tell them. Those people can easily and wrongly assume that their child is just spiritually sensitive to the things of God and is on the threshold of becoming a Christian. Both of them are dead. Both of them are dead. There are no degrees of deadness. The compliant child, for all you know, enjoys learning about the Bible because he or she is just a very curious, bright person. They like all kinds of learning. They're very curious. Perhaps he or she, unbeknownst to you, looks forward to Sunday school because they have a crutch on their Sunday school teacher. (laughs) Or maybe one of the other students. It happens. And that explains their so-called sensitivity to the things of God. In the case of the hardened, lifelong sinner on death row, God is fully capable of bringing genuine brokenness to them over their life of depravity. They're both dead. They both need a resurrection. They're both under the sentence of death. Paul will later call them children of wrath. And so as parents, the lesson here is we better not let up praying for our kids because we've probably met some adults who, when they were kids, loved going to church and Sunday school and yet nonetheless grew up hardened to the gospel and now would never go to church. On the other side of the coin, parents who have children who are genuine prodigals and who now curse the things of God that they were raised up with, don't forget, all they need is a spiritual resurrection to love God as much or more than you. So never give up praying. Another implication, uh, very practical, of having a right understanding of the spiritual deadness of unbelievers is because it will profoundly shape the way we understand and the way we do evangelism. 
Many evangelicals rightly treasure Billy Graham. He served Christ sacrificially over all the world for decades, and many believers can point to him and his crusade evangelism as the beginning of their spiritual lives. He preached the gospel, and the power of that gospel was powerful to save people, and you may be one of those. But it's also indisputable, as people have studied Graham's ministry, born-again believers have studied Graham's ministry, that only 5% of those who went forward to be saved in Graham's crusade were regularly attending a church 20 years after they were allegedly saved. 5%. I'm not here to pick on Billy Graham. The problem's not Billy Graham. He's just a product of his time. He was a great man. But what it means is in this world-renowned ministry, Billy Graham's ministry produced far more false converts than it did real ones. And there are doubtless many reasons for that. And by the way, he, he knew this. This is not news to him. One reason is surely that back when his ministry began, he would not have known this necessarily, he and other evangelists practiced what, we, what would be called decision evangelism. Some of you know that. Many of you have read articles from Decision Magazine. Making a decision was a major theme of the ministry. They named their magazine after it. Today, many of you do not know that this style of evangelism differed significantly from the ministries of other great evangelists who had gone before, people like Charles Spurgeon and George Whitfield. Their appeal was not to decisions. When you approach evangelism with the goal that sinners would make a decision for Christ, that is very different than the goal of God raising dead sinners to life in Christ. Frankly, in the 1950s to the 1980s, which is mostly when Graham and other people like him ministered, the culture still very much believed in God and heaven and hell. And so in that culture, simply getting people to decide for Christ, which could be very ambiguous, didn't require a miracle. It could sound something like this. Because you're a sinner before a holy God, you're bound for hell. And that's the worst possible fate you can imagine. So repent of your sin and make a decision tonight to follow Jesus. Just ask Jesus into your heart. Choose to follow him and he will spare you from eternal condemnation. Now is it possible that God would use that message to genuinely save sinners? Of course it is. And in God's grace, many were saved by that message. Another crucial aspect of decision-style evangelism, and as if you've ever worked with the Graham Society or his ministry, as, as I have, another big part of that personal evangelism is what they call their follow-up ministry. Okay? Now, much of the time, in my experience, when I was doing it, personally following up with someone who went forward in a crusade amounted a big part of it was to reassure the person who had prayed the prayer that he or she had genuinely been saved, even if they didn't have any real sense of that. Now, that follow-up ministry is noticeably absent in the ministry of earlier evangelists like Spurgeon and Whitfield, who preached to raise the dead and not to bring a decision. To state the obvious, someone who has been raised from death to life doesn't need much confirmation that God has done something in their life. Making a decision for Christ because you don't want to go to hell is very different than preaching a message of repentance from dead works with the miraculous goal of raising rebel sinners from the dead to a radically new kind of life in Christ. 
When that genuinely happens, the Bible teaches that you become a new creation with a new heart filled with new desires and new appetites, and you are by that new nature capable of growing in deep love for Christ that you never had before. That's a miracle, and that's the promise of the new covenant in places like Jeremiah 31 and 33 and Ezekiel 36. Let's read 36, 25, 27 as he's looking at this new covenant that's going to come, that's better than the one they were under in the Old Testament. And God promises, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you hear the difference? In the first evangelistic appeal, you're trying to get the person to see the reasonableness of choosing Christ as their Savior because you have a sin problem. Again, the research indicates that that type of evangelism produces a lot of false converts. In the older approach, I would argue the more biblical approach, you're calling people who are dead in their sins by God's grace to cast themselves on the mercy of God in the hope that by the death of Jesus, he will save them eternally. And that means that they will receive not only Jesus, but also a new, alive, spiritual heart, along with new love and new adoration for Christ, because they can now see where they were formerly blinded, now they can see the beauty of Christ, the glory of Christ, and the reality of his love for them. In the first approach, you can go forward and pray a prayer, but often need reassurance that something real has happened in your life, whether it has or not. In the second approach, you're praying that God in his mercy will do a life-giving, heart-changing, sin-forgiving, destiny-altering miracle in your life. It's much easier to be a false convert if you simply made a decision than than it is for God to do what you know to be a supernatural life-imparting miracle in your life. The point of all of that is not to in any way criticize an individual who is a person of his time, but really to emphasize the truth that what we were before we were saved, namely dead, is not simply an interesting theological fact. It has some very practical and important application for us and those we love who don't know Jesus and we're seeking to win them. We must know what it will take from God to make sinners into genuine Christ-loving believers. If for no other reason, we need to pray for them. We need to pray prayers like, God, take out the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. God, circumcise their heart. God, raise them from the dead. God, regenerate that person. Give them a new nature. Give them a new heart. Give them new desires. Do a miracle in their life. Don't just pray that they're going to decide to follow Jesus. Anyway, this is really important. This has very important application for a lot of us. Paul's answer is clear in terms of what it takes from God. Because they're dead and their sins and trespasses, sinners need to be, as we said last week, spiritually raised from the dead by a miracle of God's grace. You show me a person who's had a genuine conversion experience, and I will show you someone who is filled with praise for God and his glorious grace. And as we've seen, that is Paul's main burden in this entire letter. 
for us to be the kind of people who would be filled with praise for the glory of his grace. That's what he prayed for. Now let's look at what Paul says are implications of being dead in trespasses and sins from the text. He elaborates on this, on what it is to be spiritually dead, which means it's important if he's going into this kind of detail. First, Paul says that, that when we walked or lived as a sinner, we were following the course of this world. That's what he says. Now that word course literally means age, the age of this world. And the word means the world existing in the particular span of time. So this is pretty nuanced here. The point of time reference is not inconsequential. It's important. Paul is revealing that being dead to God means being enslaved to the fallen world in which we presently live. So he's narrowing it down. The world in which we live, not world generally, the world in which we live. He says that. That's his point. The lies of this world that sinners believe change slightly over time as the culture changes. But in each generation and in each version of this lost world, sinners are enslaved by those particular lies in their time. And they swallow them hook, line, and sinker. For instance, spiritually dead people who lived in the West in 1950 were carried along by a much more conservative but still worldly culture where sexual values were much more different than today's version of the world. Back then, the world, as we know, had been much more influenced by the church, and dead sinners were carried along with that more conservative value system because they were under the enslaving influence of that version of the world. Today, 2022, 1950s sexual values have been completely erased in our world. And so dead sinners alive today and enslaved to this world are enslaved to a much more permissive morality. It doesn't mean that the 1950 sinners were less dead than the sinners of today. Both groups of sinners lived as they did and believed as they did because they were enslaved to the prevalent values of that worldly culture. Both, Paul would say, were following the course of this world. That's what dead sinners do in any age, in any culture. Next in verse 2, Paul says that dead sinners are following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan we saw last time, who is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now this really only makes sense when you understand what the Bible says about the world, the flesh, and the devil. The values and priorities of this world are there. They're manifest in this world. But behind this world, they are the product of Satan. He's busy working in sinners to influence them by those values. Apart from God's overriding grace, sinners very much dance to the tune that Satan plays for them. Sinners follow this world and this world is following Satan. That's the progression. If Satan is the source of the dark messaging of this value of this world, this world is the megaphone that he uses to scream his message and values into people. So he's the source of the message, but this world, as Paul and the New Testament uses that term, that's the megaphone through which those values are screamed. That's what he's saying. That's important for us to know. 
Satan is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, when Paul uses the word sons, the sons of disobedience, to describe dead sinners, he's communicating something specific, and that is that these sinners behave like their spiritual father, the ultimate father of disobedience, who is Satan. This is what Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 8. In verse 44, he tells them, "'You are of your father, the devil.'" And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So if your spiritual father is Satan, it only follows that disobedience is embedded in your spiritual DNA. We must never forget there is no neutral territory between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. You're in one or the other. You either have God as your father and your spiritual DNA is shaped by the Holy Spirit, which is, by God's grace, increasing your love and devotion to Jesus, or you have Satan as your father and your disobedience-tainted spiritual DNA comes from him. It may be hard to see our lost friends and loved ones as children of Satan or sons of disobedience, but that's what the New Testament calls them, and we need to understand that. Paul continues in verse 3, and he says that we were at one time among these sons of disobedience, and we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's important. The sinful cravings of dead sinners are radically different than the default new creation cravings and passions and desires of the believer. Doesn't mean the believers can't have those, but the default setting for believers is radically different. Dead sinners are absolutely enslaved to live in the passions of our flesh. Now, the word flesh here is important again because Paul has already mentioned that we follow this world and the prince of the power of this world, the devil. And the New Testament teaches consistently that the three great enemies of the church are the world and the flesh and the devil. And they're all three in this text. The flesh is not the same thing. It's not synonymous with our physical bodies. Paul says here that the two work together, our flesh and our physical bodies, but they're not the same thing. The flesh throughout the New Testament is a spiritual power within the dead sinner, resident in his or her body that ruthlessly enslaves the person. They can't ultimately resist its influence over them, certainly not for any length of time. So if, as we said, Satan is the messenger that he is the ultimate source of this demonically charged lie and sinful desire that oppose God, and the world is the megaphone or transmitter of those lies, the flesh is that part of fallen humanity that receives with delight these lies and sinful desires. The world is like the radio station transmitting satanic lies and desires, and the flesh is set to the exact same frequency as the world. And so it's anxiously and ably receiving these lies, believing them, and acting on them. And Paul says these sinful acts carry out the desires of the body and the mind. All sin begins in the realm of desire. James chapter 1 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it fully grows, brings forth death. Desires in and of themselves are morally neutral. Our hearts are 
factories of desire all the time. For instance, sexual desire in and of itself is not evil. In fact, God programmed that desire into humanity as a good thing within marriage. But sinners take the desires of the body and the mind and energize it with the passions of the flesh. And that perverts the desire, it twists it, and it selfishly exploits it. The same can be said for any tainted desire of the sinful flesh. Desires for food, desires for influence, desires for popularity are morally neutral in and of themselves, but the flesh energizes and it directs those desires to self-centered and destructive ends. Paul concludes this wretched litany of truths about spiritually dead people when he says that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's no accident that Paul refers to sinners twice here as some kind of offspring. First he says, you're sons of disobedience, and here, children of wrath. The point is that dead sinners are not only sons of the devil in their disobedience to God, as a result, they're also destined to share in his fate, the eternal wrath of God. Paul says sinners are this way, by nature, okay? That is, it is part of their innate, essential being to be destined for wrath because they are, by nature, in rebellion against God and therefore subject to his holy wrath. It's important that we see that dead sinners, by their sin and slave nature, are destined for the wrath of God. This is why when you hear about the movie star who is uh, an alcoholic and they go in for treatment, you say, boy, I hope that works for him. And sometimes it does, but most of the time it doesn't because they're enslaved. And most, much of the time when they get rid of this habit, they just get another habit. And that's true not only people of note, but of true of every sinner. Frequently, they can get free of alcoholism only by getting some other thing that's not quite so socially unacceptable because they're enslaved by nature. Picture this reality. I grew up in a place where there were a lot of slaughterhouses. I grew up in a rural area. Picture a cow or, as those of us who know something about bovine, steer. Picture a steer that when they unload them from the truck is unknowingly led into the meat processing plant. This is a sinner. He moves along a narrow conveyor with barriers on both sides and has no idea what's about to happen to him. He's just blindly following the animal in front of him. And he does this because he's a cow. And from birth, at least in our culture, it was his destiny. It's his nature to end up as food. That's why God put him here. Now, once he enters that meat processing conveyor, Unless something happens like it stops, it's impossible for any of those animals not to be killed and butchered. There's no possible escape for them. At this point, rescue would be a miracle. No one wants to rescue them. He would have to supernaturally levitate up in front of those barriers and be carted away outside the plant. That's the only hope for these people, or these steers, which means there's no hope. That's why God put them here so they could be eaten, okay? That's a picture of the reality that the dead sinners we live with and rub shoulders with every day unknowingly confront all of their lives. They may be gifted and attractive and winsome people living their lives as conscientious individuals, completely blinded to their nature and the destiny that apart from a miracle of grace, 
Their nature will bring them. They have no idea that they are on a one-way, worldly conveyor to hell and God's eternal judgment. Many of them, frankly, scoff at the suggestion of such a thing. But that is what the Bible says about them. They are obliviously living according to their fallen nature, walking according to the course of this world in rebellion to God. They may be very nice people doing all sorts of nice things, but the rebellion is seen in why they do what they do. They don't do it for the glory of God. They do it for other reasons, ultimately, which end up benefiting themselves. They're deceived into believing that they're living in freedom. But the scripture reveals that they are enslaved to walk that unavoidable path that their nature forces them to walk until at the appointed time they will, apart from God's saving grace, fulfill their destiny as they face the wrath they were born for as children of wrath. Unless they're spiritually resurrected off that conveyor of death and given eyes that are enlightened to see the truth that they are on this path of destruction, unless by a miracle of God's grace they see their sin for what it really is and what it's bringing to them, unless they come and su- unless they understand the suffering that God's eternal wrath is in their future, they're in real trouble. And Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 10. He asks a very salient question in this context in verse 14. Speaking of sinners, it says, How then will they, these dead sinners, call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? People don't get off that conveyor of death in this life without being miraculously taken off of it. And that doesn't happen apart from God's saving grace. And as we've seen, God's saving grace cannot be realized in the life of a sinner without the call of the gospel, that you would know the hope of your calling. The call of the gospel has to be spoken to a sinner by someone else unless they're reading the Bible. Only then can its power to save them be released into their dead hearts as they're resurrected to new life in Christ. We are in constant contact with these spiritually dead people, these spiritual zombies who appear to be alive but are in the most important way dead. We have them in our families, we have them in our neighborhoods and in our places of work. And each day they move just a little bit closer to their eternal destruction, completely blinded to the hope that they could have in the gospel. We cannot save them, but we are given the unspeakable privilege of telling them the good news. We can tell them the good news ourselves, or we can help them get to a place where they can hear it. The saving message of the gospel raises spiritually dead people to life every day. It's embedded with death-destroying power. And we have a chance to speak into the lives of people. As you've heard these truths about the spiritually dead, who has God laid on your heart? Maybe he's laid you on your heart. If God has laid someone on your heart or several someones, pray about how God wants you to reach them with the gospel so that they can be raised up out of their spiritual graves. You can tell them yourself. We have a wonderful track out there called Two Ways to Live. Pick it up. It's there for you, free. It's a great way to give the gospel to someone. Or invite them to church or invite them to watch or listen to some media where there's a clear, faithful gospel message preached. There are more ways to get the message out today than ever before if we'll 
have by the grace of God the boldness to speak to people about it and take that risk. Lord willing, next week we'll spend some time thinking about this glorious gospel and what it does for dead sinners. He begins the next section, but God. The two most beautiful words in the Bible, but God. So may God give us the grace to think deeply about the lost state of sinners in order to fuel, first, our worship for the miracle of salvation, second, a passion to share this message of hope to others as they're winding their way to hell. And let's do this for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, this is a sobering message, talking about spiritually dead people. And yet, God, it's so crucial that we know the truth. Father, if there's anyone here today who, as they've been listening to this, they've become convinced, that's me. Because I don't, I don't have this sensitivity. I, I don't have a taste. I don't have a hunger for the glory of Christ or the beauty of Christ. It's just kind of out there. God, I pray for those you do a miracle that you would open the eyes of their heart and it would reveal to them through a spirit of wisdom and revelation the hope, the glory, the beauty of Christ. Father, help us to be faithful. God, all of us at some point in time, maybe they live in our next door bedroom. Father, I pray that you would give us the glory and the grace to be able to speak the message or get them to the message in some way. God. Help us to be people who are faithful and people who show love for those people who are headed unbeknownst to them to a very, very bad place forever. And God, give us the grace to reach out as one beggar to another, handing them some bread. God, may it be so for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <laughs>